Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to episode five of Raw Talk Podcast, the podcast formerly known as Raw Data. On this episode, Jabir chats with Dr. Michael Failings, who's a professor of neurosurgery and super accomplished scientist and physician extraordinaire at the University of Toronto. Then on the Mentor's Corner segment, I actually sit down with Dr. Failings' mentor and former supervisor, Dr. Charles Tatter, to add a little bit more context to the conversation. This really is an episode that features two heavyweights in the Canadian neurosurgery community and is not one to miss. Now, fun fact, I actually finished editing this episode about 20 minutes before its release date, and I think that's pretty much in keeping with the grad school tradition of having way too much on your plate. Here it is in its original form, episode five. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning into episode five of the Raw Data Podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. This episode kicks off November's theme of neurotrauma, and today we're pleased to be joined by none other than spinal cord injury guru, Dr. Michael Failings. Now, what started off as a personal challenge to enter the most demanding medical field turned into a refinement of the art and science of neurosurgery. Today, Dr. Failings is a professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto, a senior scientist at the Toronto Western Research Institute, director of the U of T Neuroscience Program, director of the Spinal Program at Toronto Western Hospital, medical director of the Kremble Neuroscience Center at the University Health Network, and the list goes on. In our discussion, Dr. Failings tells us about the evolving state of the field of neurosurgery, the impact of his research on clinical outcomes, as well as the emerging hope and accompanying hype of stem cells and other regenerative treatments. Put on your helmet, buckle up, and let's get into it. So I'll be honest with you, the first time I'm... Well, when you arrived, the last time we saw each other, we were preparing for the video, we were shooting the video. Yes. And then as you arrived, my first thought was, man, this guy looks very young. Because you're a neurosurgeon, I know a lot of your students who are in your lab right now, and I re- briefly read your profile. A lot of accomplishments, so I was surprised to see a youthful-looking neurosurgeon. But then we started chatting, and you had mentioned that you started your MD at the age of 19. It kind of made a lot of sense. So is it safe to say that you always want to be a physician? No, not at all. At one time, I, I thought I might play professional hockey and um, was dissuaded of that. And then, um, and then I thought I might go into law. And then I uh, decided toward the end of high school that I was uh, going to be uh, heading toward medicine. So my goal in university was always to go into into medical school, so that was pretty clear. So you finished a couple of years, and then you applied? Yes, I was in, in, in early admission group, and so got in after two years of undergraduate. That's impressive. The next step was general surgery when you were doing your um, residency training. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the route of entry at that point was that everyone did a general internship. Uh, so nowadays, people go into... Uh, a residency program right away. What was common then when I did my training was that everyone qualified by doing a general internship, then you became, you were licensed as a physician and then many people would go into general practice at that time. Mm -hmm. And then some people would go back into residency after they'd been out um, at work for a period of time. For individuals such as myself that were interested in pursuing either general surgery or a surgical subspecialty, we would start in a core training in surgery. And that's what I did. And I actually, uh, after my MD in Toronto, I went to Queen's University and did uh, my core training in general surgery there. And then 
subsequent to that, came back to Toronto to do my uh, specialist training in, neuro, in neurosurgery. So why neurosurgery? Why? What convinced you that that may have been the path for you to specialize in neurosurgery after coming? Well, well, at age 19, when I entered medical school, I didn't know too much about all the different specialties, but I thought the brain was cool, and I wanted to pick the hardest thing I could possibly think of doing, and I thought that was neurosurgery. And so, uh, you know, my, my choice was perhaps... Uh, uh, rather, rather, rather naive, but it's worked out. It's worked out well, and it's been a very good fit for me. I'm very happy with the choice. One of uh, our previous guests, Dr. Norm Rosenblum, when he was making his decision and what he wanted to specialize in, one of the rotations he was in was in general surgery, and he give, tells us the story that when the professor or the senior resident was asking him a question, his answer was too long, and the resident said, "Well, you're thinking too much," and not to say that surgeons don't think a lot but he was just giving very in-depth answers and they connected him to an internist. So what was your surgical neurosurgery residence like? Are there particular traits or qualities in a neurosurgeon, neurosurgical resident that stand out more to someone who may go into internal medicine or pediatrics? Well, I think one of the, one of the first choices that you, you make when you're in medical school is do you want to do you know, general practice or what's now referred to as family practice? Or do you want to specialize? And if you specialize, do you want to go into a medical specialty or a surgical specialty? And so those are the divisions. I decided really from day one that I was interested in doing surgery. And the reason was that I was interested in both the cognitive aspects of medicine, but also the practical aspects and the idea of doing technical procedures appeal to me. So neurosurgery is a surgical specialty, so it's distinct from neurology, and mm -hmm. both specialties deal with neuroscience and the brain and the spinal cord and, and, the, and the nerves, but, but they're different in that neurosurgery is a very technically oriented uh, specialty. So uh, the, the, the traits, I think, that are in common to, to neurosurgeons is neurosurgeons enjoy the detail and the beauty of the brain and the central nervous system. So that's a unique trait. All surgeons have a love of anatomy and physiology. These are the basic sciences that are most relevant to, uh, to surgery. And in, in neurosurgery, I, I think uh, certain traits that are in common to, uh, to people in the specialty are attention to detail. Uh, enjoying um, doing difficult procedures that may at times be long, mm -hmm. many hours. And one can't be afraid of hard work because there is a lot of hard work that's involved both in the training and then ultimately in the practice of neurosurgery. Okay, and then at some point you decided to incorporate research into your clinical practice. And when did this happen? And uh, When I first entered medical school, I really had no concept of why physicians would be doing anything other than clinical medicine. And I was exposed to different uh, types of, of practice, so people that were teaching and people that were doing research. And so my first exposure, I think, at the University of Toronto Medical School was through my, the summer student research electives, which made me aware of some of the research that was uh, going on, and I found that was um, quite interesting. And then the, the neurosurgery residency in Toronto 
placed a high emphasis on research training as part of the training of becoming a surgeon. And in fact, that's um, uh, a characteristic of surgical training in, at the University of Toronto in general. There's something called the Surgeon Scientist Training Program. And why is that? Why is there this emphasis on research training as well? Well, research training is an important part of surgical training. It helps you with understanding the cognitive aspects of your specialty, the basic science of the specialty. It allows you to um, be, uh, be thoughtful, to be inquisitive, to push the boundaries. Um, you don't want to be an expert at doing the wrong operation 10 years after you graduate. So there's a lot more to doing surgery than just the technical aspects of mm -hmm. doing surgery. This has been emphasized um, in Toronto. And so early on in my neurosurgical residency, I was exposed to Dr. Charles Tatter, who's been my mentor. And Dr. Tatter was very interested in the spinal cord and spinal cord injury. And this was really my first exposure to uh, someone who had subspecialized within neurosurgery on spine and spinal cord disorders. And then when I was um, working on Dr. Tatter's clinical service, I became uh, exposed to many individuals with neurotrauma, uh, uh, brain injury and spinal cord injury. And I was struck by how devastating the outcomes were and that a critical limitation was our inability to um, influence recovery, plasticity, regeneration, central nervous system after severe injuries. And Dr. Tatter was doing basic science, preclinical research in spinal cord injury. And um, I found that inspiring and made the decision during my residency to enter the surgeon scientist training program and to enter into Dr. Tatter's laboratory. And at that time, the model was for surgeons to do two years and to obtain a Master of Science degree. That was originally my plan. And then uh, about six months into doing the research, I had two big surprises. One was that I really liked doing research. <laughs> and the second was that I was pretty good at it. And so I... Those made, are pretty good surprises. They were. And uh, so I took the unusual step at that time to request uh, transfer into... A PhD stream. And, and, and you had mentioned this was, you were one of the first transfers and you were doing this through IMS, is that correct? I, I, that's right. I was a graduate student in the Institute of Medical Science and I was one of the first uh, students to do the transfer examination, which was a relatively um, new concept. I don't know if I was the first student, probably not, but certainly one of the first students uh, to undertake that uh, examination. And why was that a surprise to you that you actually enjoyed doing research? Was it something about the mentorship you were obtaining from Dr. Charles Tatter? Was it the curiosity-driven research that you were doing? Well, why was that a surprise to you? What, one of my teachers in high school chemistry told me in grade 13, we had grade 13 at that time, that I was going to be an academic and that I was going to be a researcher. <laughs> and I looked at this uh, uh, a very intelligent woman from Eastern Europe, and I thought to myself, you're so wrong. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a surgeon, perhaps a neurosurgeon. And I didn't really understand the concept 
of being a surgeon scientist or being a clinician scientist and the idea of actually doing both and doing an academic practice and combining that with a practical clinical practice. And so I think going into medical school, I viewed this as not being along a path that would head toward a research degree as well. I viewed this as entering professional school, mm. being trained professionally as a, um, as a physician and then doing specialty training in, in, in surgery. And I think one of the really wonderful things at the University of Toronto in training in, in medicine was that I was exposed to mentors and to opportunities to do research. And, and certainly it's not necessarily for everyone and it's a wonderful thing to be a physician and to simply take care of, of patients. That, that, that's, that's excellent. That's the core of being a doctor. But had I not been exposed to those experiences, I never would have actually realized in myself that I would have um, enjoyed uh, doing research and finding, you know, really great satisfaction in in combining the research with my with my clinical practice. So it was a lot of foreshadowing at the time because that's what you're doing right now too. You're balancing your clinical re- uh, duties with your research work. I am, and today's a case in point. I both submitted a major grant dealing with induced pluripotent stem cells to regenerate the spinal cord, and I did two operations today. So sort of multitasking. I started my day early this morning um, working on the grant and and polishing this and working with my team to get this uh, grant finalized. And then did the two surgeries, and uh, fortunately both uh, went very well. I was quite pleased with how they went. was interacting with, with the families and, you know, uh, really getting a lot of enjoyment out of both. Hey everyone, Richie here, and on this edition of Classics, we highlight a landmark paper published by Drs. Charles Tatter and Michael Failings all the way back in 1991. Published in the Journal of Neurosurgery, this review suggests that acute trauma to the spinal cord results in vascular changes that cause local and systemic effects. Following the immediate mechanical damage to blood vessels, so-called secondary injuries produce progressive spinal cord ischemia or improper blood flow that results in further damage and impediment to normal blood vessel function and patient recovery. This so-called vascular model of secondary injury has garnered international support from neurosurgery groups that have since included treatment of secondary symptoms such as post-traumatic ischemia as part of their therapeutic modality of spinal cord injury. Now that's translational research in action. Okay, let's continue the discussion. What was your thesis on at that time? You mentioned you were focused on the secondary effects after the primary that, damage. That, that's right. So the, my thesis mainly focused on um, the idea that after uh, injury to the central nervous system, and we call that the primary injury, that that injury is amplified through processes that are called the secondary injury and that accentuates the amount of uh, damage and the the thesis that we were pursuing was that ischemia or reduction in blood flow to the injured tissues was critical in inciting the uh, events of secondary injury and from my thesis work Dr. Tatter and I published a paper 
which is now felt to be one of the seminal papers in the field, and this was um, introducing the concept of the ischemic hypothesis of secondary injury, and, and that has now been fundamental to um, about two decades worth of research that has has occurred around around the world related to trying to attenuate the effects of secondary injury. And that's been now been translated into clinical practice. So protocols to try to maintain blood flow and to reduce secondary injury. And this has also spawned multiple types of uh, basic science research to identify the molecular pathways related to these secondary injury events. You must experience a lot of joy for being able to see an observation and taking it, thinking of a mechanism, clinical trials, treatment. It is cool yeah. to, to see that uh, occur. It, it was really not something that I had initially expected to do. It was my hope, yeah. ultimately, to be able to translate that. I mean, I, I, I see all the time the limits of what we don't know and wanting to push um, the boundaries. But it, it's satisfying to me to see the impact that this has had on patients because if we now look at the trajectory of outcome for people who have a spinal cord injury now in 2016 versus when I graduated from medical school in 1983, it's dramatically different and the outcomes are much better. Mm -hmm. And so you're also interested in studying inflammation, cerebral palsy. Can you talk about these other focal points of your research lab right now? Sure. We're doing both basic science work and clinical trials. So one of the areas that I've, I've gone into over the last 15 years is trying to translate the basic science work into clinical trials. So most of the research that I'm doing on secondary injury actually relates to uh, clinical trials and we're currently engaged in a clinical trial studying a drug called Riluzol, which blocks sodium channels and also reduces glutamate release and enhances glutamate uptake. And that work directly resulted from uh, the work that I did as a PhD student on the ischemic hypothesis of secondary injury and the early work that I did during the first 10 years in my um, independent laboratory. This uh, research has now spawned different streams. I continue to be very focused on central nervous system injury. And one of my dreams always was to try to translate the work in spinal cord injury to other types of nervous system injury. And one of the types of nervous system injury I'm examining is uh, the most common cause of um, pediatric developmental brain injury. And this is um, a cerebral palsy, which typically results from an ischemic injury prior to birth or sometimes right at the time of, of birth. And this causes quite a significant um, structural damage. And that work has been a direct uh, spin-off of the spinal cord work. And the other main focus in my laboratory now is in regenerative neuroscience. And we're focusing on the use of stem cells, and specifically neural stem cells, coupled with bioengineered strategies to try to treat spinal cord injury and now cerebral palsy. The two are linked and the strategies that we're using in the animal models of cerebral palsy are very much tied to the basic science work that we've been studying in spinal cord injury. So what constitutes like a clinically relevant or valid 
animal model of spinal cord injury or um, cerebral palsy are. How do you replicate or reproduce these pathophysiological aspects that you see in patients in these animal models? If my neuroanatomy is correct, there's different divisions of the spinal cord. And depending on where the injury is occurring, are you seeing the same pathophysiological effects? So the, the main animal models that we use involve mice and rats. And no animal model is going to precisely mirror all of the complex pathophysiology in a human being. You try to get close to what you see in, um, in, human, in human patients. In, in the context of spinal cord injury, the most common types of injury are blunt injuries where the vertebrae are fractured and there, there is compression and contusion of the spinal cord. And so the model that I'm using is one that was originally developed in Dr. Tatter's laboratory, and then subsequently um, uh, our, our group has, has modified that and, and perfected that further. And this involves an extradural clip compression injury, and we've, um, this produces a blunt injury and also mimics some of the ongoing compression of the spinal cord. And... Over the course of many years, we have perfected the model and have characterized the model. Ultimately, the real test of how valid the models are or whether the results are transferable to human patients. But we have two examples from our laboratory where the results, I think, have made an impact. One is the concept of early decompression of the spinal cord, and this really was a direct translation of the research that we had done around the ischemic hypothesis of secondary injury. And if the hypothesis is correct, then early decompression should attenuate the effects of the secondary injury. And indeed, we did a clinical trial called the Surgical Timing in Acute Spinal Cord Injury Study, or the Staskis trial, which did show that early decompression resulted in substantially improved outcomes for patients. So that was one example mm -hmm. where the results were transferable. And the second example is the concept that one needs to maintain the blood flow to the spinal cord by raising the blood pressure of, of the patient. And that's a direct consequence of the work that we did on the ischemic hypothesis. So in that sense, the model has been validated and tested. But there are limitations to any model, and patients are complex. Each patient has a slightly different injury mechanism. And what's important is to share the results of the research to collaborate. And then uh, there are many groups that are using somewhat different models that examine different ways to produce a controlled injury of the nervous system. And these models have their own utility. And ultimately, when you're looking at how effective a therapy might be to translate it to the clinic, you want to see effects that work in multiple different laboratories and multiple mm -hmm. different models. That's fair. And uh, you had mentioned that, that another line of research is the neurostem cells and regenerative therapeutics. And there's the Barbara Tater Symposium coming up later this month. And one of the talks we can you can give us a quick teaser overview is you discussing the hope and the hype of uh, neural stem cells, transplanted neural stem cells in repair and regeneration of spinal cord injury. So would you care to give us a little teaser to that? Sure. So the, the lectureship is the uh, Charles Tatter Barbara Turnbull lectureship. And I believe this is our 14th year, the lectureship. And 
I wanted to honor Dr. Tatter's work and and then when I approached Charles uh, around this, um, he really wanted to uh, include Barbara Turnbull in the name Blechtershman. Barbara Turnbull is a, a lovely young woman who was injured at age 18, tragically, a gunshot wound to the neck here in Toronto, and um, was Dr. Tatter's patient. And Barbara subsequently became a journalist with the Toronto Star. Tragically, she, um, uh, she died a couple of years ago. So there are two inspirational people for whom the lectureship is named. So my talk is on neural stem cells. And why call it, you know, the hype and the hope? Well, stem cells are very cool. And there's a lot of mystique and mystery around stem cells. And in some regards, they're magical. But the reality is, as with any therapy, they have their positive effects and then they have their limitations. And uh, sometimes uh, the effects of stem cells are greatly exaggerated. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of medical tourism in the field of spinal cord injury, where individuals with an injury will go overseas to countries that lack strict regulation of the stem cells and are offered stem cells in the form of cures, in, in quotes, for spinal cord injury and pay often a great deal of, of money. And the reality is that, unfortunately, there is no stem cell treatment currently for spinal cord injury, and th that's the hype. And sometimes some of the reports in the media are sensationalized, unfortunately, mm -hmm. around this, and one sees individual examples of, of people going to Panama and various other countries overseas. Okay, so that's the hype. But the hope is that the, the science behind stem cells, and particularly neural stem cells for brain and spinal cord repair and regeneration is really quite remarkable. And we actually have entered an era of regenerative neuroscience, and we have commenced clinical trials with neural stem cells in individuals with various forms of brain injury and, and spinal cord injury. We are early on the path and there's a lot further research that's required, but it's remarkable. And one of the really cool aspects of stem cells relates to the technology called induced pluripotent stem cells. And this was a discovery made by a Japanese researcher called Yamanaka, who won the Nobel Prize for this work within the past decades, fairly recently. And this technology allows one to take a somatic cell from the person themselves, say um, a, a skin cell, grow that in culture, and then you introduce four key transcription factors, and you can transform that somatic cell into a pluripotent stem cell. And then using various tricks in culture, you can then drive that pluripotent stem cell to make any cell type in the human body, including nerve cells. Now, there's a lot that needs to be worked out in terms of the details of, of how to do this effectively and, and, and safely, but uh, the results are, are really remarkable. And, and, and the, the data that we're getting from the preclinical models of spinal cord injury are really remarkable. Uh, where this is going further, and in fact, our grant is dealing with what I've called next generation stem cell technology, and we call these smart cells. And the smart cells are designed 
and genetically engineered to secrete factors that will enable their, their survival once they're injected into the nervous system and allow them to, to integrate with the host tissue. And then in addition, they can secrete factors that will alter the microenvironment, so to degrade scar tissue, for example. And I envision realistically that within the next decade, we will be seeing significant breakthroughs that will be occurring in the area of regenerative neuroscience. We're just on the cusp, mm -hmm. and potentially there'll be another breakthrough disruptive type of technology that will allow us to move this forward even to a greater extent. And the last time we uh, talked, you had mentioned that big science is team-based. Yeah, one of the wonderful things at the University of Toronto is the opportunity for uh, clinician scientists to work with basic scientists. And I think this kind of a team works very well. So our um, 15 years ago, there was an opportunity through CIHR for a new emerging team grant. Mm -hmm. And I took advantage of this and approached uh, my basic science colleagues, um, Derek Vanderkoy, uh, Cindy Morrishead, uh, Molly Shoika, Charles, and Charles Tatter is a fellow clinician scientist. And we created the first um, new emerging team. And s subsequently, we've uh, enticed Andres Naji to uh, join our team uh, as well. And it's a unique combination of uh, basic scientists who are focused in stem cells and developmental biology, bioengineering, and translational models of uh, spinal cord injury, and then expertise in patient management and, and, and clinical trials. The Tatter Turnbull lectureship features a, a guest speaker from, over, uh, from uh, elsewhere in the country or overseas. And then we also present the results of research here in, uh, here in Toronto. And we try to span the spectrum from talking about the preclinical work, which is the main focus of our SINET team, as well as the translational, a translational, a clinical uh, aspects of, of the work. This year's speaker is uh, Klaus uh, Holting, who is, comes from Karolinska in Sweden, and has set up a very innovative rehabilitation program. But what's remarkable about Professor Holting is that he himself is a uh, C6 uh, quadriplegic. And when he was in medical school, just prior to graduation from medical school, unfortunately he was injured. And how, how was he injured? I believe it was a water-related accident, mm -hmm. and I think it may have been a diving-related spinal cord injury. He was engaged to be married at that time, and he did go ahead and get married. He did graduate from medical school. He was trained as an anesthesiologist, pain management physician, then subsequently morphed himself into becoming a rehabilitation specialist. Um, he's been happily married. He has kids. And so part of our symposium would also be focused on some of the themes that he embodies and specifically will be uh, including some of our uh, excellent rehabilitation colleagues uh, here at the University of Toronto. So there's a lot of things to look forward to at that symposium. I think so. It is, the lectureship is open to the public, mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, we think it's important to share the results of our research with, with the public and with students. So it's typically open to, we get a lot of neuroscience students from the program in neuroscience, and, and, and we get some patients and families who attend. How does it feel to 
still work alongside your supervisor. I read somewhere that great surgeons are not known for their operations, but for their trainees. Could you say a little bit about Dr. Tatter? Oh, that's an interesting comment. I, I think that surgeons who have had an impact have excelled in multiple areas for sure. And, you know, if I look at Dr. Tatter, he was a very skilled surgeon, helped many patients, did excellent research, wonderful teacher, administrator, really excelled at multiple levels. But if one, if one looks at the legacy that one leaves, mentorship is one of the most rewarding aspects of being an, of being an academic. And uh, for me uh, as well, this has been one of the biggest areas of personal uh, satisfaction is to train people and then to try to help them launch their own careers and then... Is that what all these photos are for on the, on the right? That's what all those photos are for, yeah. So those are various uh, fellows and colleagues that I've, um, that I've mentored and I've just switched offices. So all these boxes <laughs> of various other uh, photographs and I just got back from China and I was invited by two of my former fellows who themselves are now professors mm -hmm. and have launched units themselves. And I was meeting their students and their residents, mm -hmm. which, was, um, which was very cool. You know, I think that seeing, you know, Dr. Tatter and appreciating kind of the impact that he had on me and observing the impact that he had on others was also um, uh, a source of inspiration. I can, I can only imagine. And... Um, as a, as a neurosurgeon, do you see him operate? Do you guys operate together? How does it work outside of the, in the research? I'm sure you guys collaborate. Well, what about in the operating room? Well, you guys Dr. Well, Dr. Tatter's ageless. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, I, I tease him that I, I, I think that he's uh, sipping the water from the fountain of youth. And um, he's a remarkable individual. He made the personal decision to stop operating in his mid-60s. So mm. probably about 15 years ago but continue, is continuing to do research and continues to do clinical work. He's developed an, a, an interest in concussion, for example, mm -hmm. for which he's now, I would think, almost as well known as his work in, um, in spinal cord injury. And he continues to run a research program. He has students and so on. And we work together. We collaborate. Um, uh, we continue to collaborate together. What's it like to work alongside your mentor? It's it's really cool. We've become uh, you know very very good friends, and you know we uh, talk to each other about the good things and about some of the challenges and mm -hmm. trying to find uh, you know common common solutions. And uh, so it's um, you know for for me that's been a a very a very positive development to be able to work alongside my mentor. Today on Mentors Corner, I have the distinct privilege of being joined by Dr. Charles Tatter, who is Emeritus Scientist at the Kremble Research Institute at Toronto Western Hospital, as well as Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Toronto, having previously been the Head of Neurosurgery at Sunnybrook Hospital, Director of the Toronto Hospital Neurosciences Centre, and Chairman of Neurosurgery at U of T, just to name a few roles. Welcome, Dr. Tatter. Good to meet you, Richie. So today we're discussing your role as mentor to Dr. Failings, given that he was once your student and then he went on to become a colleague of yours. So could you tell me a bit about your relationship and how that downstream partnership arose? Well, I should correct one thing that you said, and, and that is that he is now my boss. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> Not just my colleague. So we have switched roles 
but it is wonderful to uh, have witnessed his growth and development as a scientist, and more important, as a clinician scientist, because there are not too many of those people in, in the world, in fact. And one of the good things about University of Toronto and about the University Health Network and the Toronto Western Hospital, if I can put in a plug for them, is that we actually want to nurture clinician scientists. And, and it is, unfortunately, not an easy task to have a dual role as both a doctor treating patients and as a scientist making discoveries. Absolutely. I think it takes a special kind of person who's able to manage all those roles. So do you have a, a first impression of Dr. Failings that you maybe remember back in the day? Uh, very intense. <laughs> okay. Uh, very devoted to getting ahead, to making gains. Uh, not only for himself, in other words, rising along the career ladder that he has uh, chosen for himself, but also making gains in general to push the boundaries of spinal cord injury uh, knowledge farther. And indeed, he has made uh, major contributions to so many aspects of both uh, basic science in spinal cord injury and also clinical management of those having sustained a major spinal cord injury. So it's been my privilege to be on board. Absolutely. And was it apparent to you then that he would become as big and as instrumental to this field as he has become? Ab absolutely, because probably within a year of being a graduate student in my lab, uh, beginning as a master's student and then progressing to a PhD, it was obvious that he was capable of independent direction, that he didn't really need me after the first year. Is that right? After the first year? After the first wow. year, he was running the show in terms of making the major decisions about which direction the research was going to go, which technique we should pursue in order to reach the goal, designing the experiments, developing collaborations. And that was evident after a year. And fortunately... It meshed completely with my own style of engaging with graduate students because I like to be quite directive at the beginning, but then I really like to let the student run the show. And with Michael Failings and other students that I've had, it was, you know, an easy transition to allow him to run the show. And indeed, it was a great show. And it's still, the show is still evolving. Right, right. So it sounds like as a mentor and as a supervisor, you allowed him sort of space and room to design his own projects. You see, my life was always extremely busy. So when others rose to the occasion to accept 
that additional responsibility of creating their own pathway, uh, I was very grateful yes. that they could uh, evolve so quickly and take over. Someone important once told me that the difference between a good mentor and a great mentor is that a great mentor will do everything that a good mentor does, but also knows when to let go and allow the student to sort of progress. And it sounds like that's something that, that you've done. I've had the opportunity to let students take over on several occasions. You can't do that with every student. Not every student is as well endowed as Michael Failing. Yes. Because, you know, he does have exceptional qualities. While I have you here, I also wanted to get a little perspective on sort of the state of medical science research. The vast majority of researchers that we speak to tell us that the future of research is collaborative, it's interdisciplinary, and it aims to provide translational outcomes and make for more patient-centered care. So having been in this field since the early 60s, you have a very unique vantage point. So you've seen the advent of new imaging technologies and then later surgical techniques and more recently stem cells. Where do you predict that medical science more broadly is headed? Will we see more game-changing technologies or have we sort of hit a plateau, a certain critical mass of knowledge that needs to be deciphered before we can move forward? Well, those are great questions. And from, from my perspective, there has been huge evolution in the style of research and also in, in the technology. So in terms of the style of research, when I started, I was squirreled away myself with perhaps one other investigator that was, was involved but it was a very circumscribed environment. And you could make gains in those days uh, in, in that way. But that probably ended in the 70s and 80s. And it was obvious at that time that to make gains, it required more of a team approach. Yes. You still had to put forth your individual brain power and your research intuition to make it work. But you couldn't do it by yourself. You couldn't do it by yourself in terms of the techniques that were required and in terms of the technology that was being brought into play. You know, when I first started, one of the big acquisitions in our lab was a scintillation counter so that we could actually determine the exact amount of radioisotope that was taken up in a brain tumor when you gave a patient an injection of a radioisotope tracer that was used to try to diagnose that tumor. And so learning the ins and outs of scintillation counting was a major part of my early research, but I could master that technology completely yes. on my own in maybe a month or two. But for example, if I were to do gene array today, I wouldn't be able to do it by myself. In fact, I don't even know how to do a Western blot, but I know who knows how to do it. And yes. I can go to that person and that person and, and try to engage that person in my research if I want to use that 
technology. So yes, it has changed. The, the style has changed from individual to group effort. But I must say that I think we have reached probably as far as we're going to go in terms of group think mm-hmm. applied to research. I do like the translational focus, though. Uh, you know, I'm a clinician scientist, so that's what I do. I think of a clinical problem and how to solve that problem through science. And so going back to mentorship, given the transforming landscape of academia, do you have any advice for new students entering research and probably looking for mentors of their own? Well, I do think the selection of a supervisor is extremely important and that it is worthwhile trying to seek out a supervisor with whom you are compatible and that is a that's can, that's quite a difficult challenge when you're entering research because you really don't know some of the questions to ask unless you're extremely mature and prescient to be able to to do that but i guess my advice is to talk to the previous student of that mentor <laughs> That's right. and see how that that person was treated uh whether you know it was true help or whether you were just acting as a servant like were you allowed to develop your own skills or were you merely carrying out the plan given to you by the supervisor does the supervisor provide that degree of independence that you actually need in order to grow. So I think it's very challenging to try to pick the right person. There's a lot of luck involved. Yes. I was I was uh, so fortunate during my own growth and development as a scientist to have had uh, incredibly talented people steering my early research. And of course, the fundamentals still applied. Hard work, vision, uh, a little bit of inspiration and and motivation. Perspiration and inspiration are the big components. I think Frederick Banting identified those two important ingredients a long time ago, and I've always uh, admired his attitude towards research. There you have it. Dr. Tatter, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Richie. Jabir, back to you. Last time, also, you, you likened neurosurgery to aviation. How is neurosurgery in the OR related to aviation? Well, I mean, I, 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 I sometimes jokingly will say that uh, being a neurosurgeon is uh, like flying an F-18 in combat. <laughs> if you think about that for a moment, it's that there are elements where teamwork is really critical to getting an airplane up in the air. And there are times when it's just you doing this, right? Um, and so ultimately you, you, you have to collaborate really well with the team and the patient has to be prepared for the operation. But there are times when there's only one person who's doing the surgery and you have to make the decisions. And if things go well, that's great. And if they don't, all eyes are on you. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, there's a lot of concentration and discipline that's required in terms of doing neurosurgery and then there are times when emergencies will arise. You may get into significant bleeding if you're repairing a, a vascular malformation or an aneurysm and you have to be cool under fire, mm -hmm. be able to solve the problem and, and get the patient out of danger safely. Yeah, so you're touching on the non-surgical skills that come into play as a neurosurgeon. I'm sure you, time management is something you prioritize, so focus and concentration, it's the mental toughness. But in terms of leadership, how does leadership differ when you're in the OR than when you're in the lab? Because you lead a research group and also people look up to your, the nurses, the anesthetics, anesthesiologists, sorry, in the OR room, they're waiting for you to make that decision. So how does the leadership differ in both uh, settings or is it the same? Well, there are certain elements uh, of working in any uh, type of an environment that are in common. I, but, you know, the operating room can be a challenging environment. It's important that everyone be on board and that there be excellent communication throughout this. Over the past few years, um, pretty much all operating rooms around the world have adopted what's called a surgical checklist. And Toronto was one of the leaders in the development of this. And that sort of codifies the concept of communication where everyone is on board at the beginning and throughout the procedure. So I would say that the leadership in the operating room involves respecting the roles of everyone and you know defining what everyone's roles are. But ultimately the decision to operate rests with the surgeon. Mm -hmm. You're in charge of doing the surgery and trying to get a good result for the patient and everyone else is there to try to help optimize the result for the patient. So it, it, it's partly being definitive with your own decision-making, being clear and being cool under fire if things aren't going well, but also respecting the roles and responsibilities of, under, of, of, all, the, of all the individuals. So the operating room differs from the lab in that you're dealing with a human patient and if you have a bad day in the lab, your experiment hasn't gone well, or you had a paper that didn't get accepted. But if you have a bad day in the operating room, that can have very bad consequences for the patient. So the stakes are different. Mm -hmm. But in the laboratory, there are many elements that are in common. So if I think of my own team, we're, you know, we're trying to solve the problem of figuring out how to repair and regenerate the injured nervous system. So we need to bring in many skills. So we collaborate um, with other researchers, and you mentioned my, my colleagues and the new emerging team, and so they bring different skill sets. And so being able to communicate with the different senior researchers on the team and, and, and knowing when to collaborate and how to communicate and, and how best to reach out to those individuals is, is, is an important skill, and there are elements of that that are in common with, with doing a neurosurgery in the operating room and then in the operating room as well I'm teaching residents and fellows and medical students who are there to learn and trying to communicate the game plan and trying to teach and judging the skill level of the of the person that you're teaching how much to delegate to them under your supervision what you need to do yourself with their assistance 
is a balancing act. And similarly in the laboratory, who in the laboratory will do what task and what tasks do you need to take on yourself as a senior mm. investigator and trying to train people that are at different levels, undergraduate and medical students and people right up to very senior postdoctoral fellows. And each person has their own, own different role and then trying to be able to communicate that and having everyone kind of moving forward. And it's not always so easy. Mm -hmm. Often the, the human management is one of the most challenging elements of research. I mean, I know you mentioned that you always wanted to be a professional hockey player, but I think with your managerial skills and your leadership qualities, you could just manage a hockey team or be a head coach. That's always in the, that's always well, in the future. But just to wrap down, thanks again for joining us. Um, any final comments, last piece of advice for students, medical students who, like yourself, were not thinking of incorporating research into their career? Or I know one thing that resonated in me that you had mentioned last time we talked was that undergrads should not view research as just an opportunity to get a reference letter for medical school. And that really resonated in me because you see a lot of undergrads who come into the lab who may have that kind of mentality. So any last comments before we end the show? Well, um, I, I would say to, um, uh, to, to students that want to be physicians who are training to be a physician, I would advise students to, to seek out opportunities to do electives in, in research, even if you think that you may not want to go into research. And, and I was very candid about myself. I really didn't think I was going to be a researcher, but being open to that opportunity uh, really you know, enabled me to see uh, my own uh, profession in a different way. But regardless of whether one, one's path is to go into research, Doing research opens one's um, a mind to the creative thought processes involved in the basic science, which underpins what you learn in medical school, and also allows one to be inquisitive and to learn how to learn. And those are, those are important aspects um, related to lifelong learning that become important. And so I think that doing electives in in research are going to be very important for for all students and it's not just about getting the reference letter it's about actually challenging yourself to expand your own horizons go beyond your comfort zone a little bit mm -hmm. and learn certain skill sets that in turn one one can use in, um, in your profession as a doctor Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks so much, Dr. Feelings. It's been a pleasure. So my much pleasure. great insight. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank Take you. Care. Raw Data is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawdataims.com. And also be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. At one time, I, I thought I might play professional hockey and um, was dissuaded of that.